This is episode 222 of the Beyond the Food Show. And today I'm going to share with you what I believe to be the antidote to diet culture and the most potent vaccine for the upcoming generation. Stay tuned. Welcome to the Going to Beyond the Food Show. I'm Stephanie Dozier, clinical nutritionist and emotional eating expert, creator of the Going to Beyond the Food method and founder of the Going to Beyond the Food Academy. Corporate executive turned health expert with my own journey with weight, body image, and food. It's now my mission to help smart, successful women like you live confidently right now and unconditionally. Ready, sister? Let's do this. Hello, sisters. Welcome back. Stephanie here and... This is the first recording of a podcast in 2020. It is January 27, back from the time off of the holiday period. Hope you had a good one as well. I know I did a, I did a lot of things and had a very good time with my family. And I wanted to take a few minutes to express my gratitude for all of you listening to the show and sharing the show with other women in your life and the reviews have been coming in consistently, and I love reading your messages. So if you haven't left a review yet, it's time to do it. The podcast is really taking off, and it's all due to you, 100% due to you, because the type of message we share here is not what's going to end up at the top of the Google search, right? We're against this big industry that's called the weight loss industry. So it is a grassroots movement. So thank you very much for all the reviews. And, and if you haven't done so, would really appreciate you doing it very easy from all the podcast app directly on your phone most of the time. And it takes literally 30 seconds. So thank you very much for all of that. It's back to work, back to recording podcast. We're getting ready for the Going to Beyond the Food Academy, our signature program to open up at the end of January. It's actually been closed since December. So it's going to be two months of not taking any new client, but looking forward to all of you who want to join us on January 27. And we've kicked off this recruitment period with an email that we sent, well, that I sent yesterday, Tuesday, January 27th. So if you're part of our community, you've got this email. And I talked about my divorce. I ended recently few years ago, actually, a 25-year relationship. You wonder which one it is? It's the relationship with guilt and shame. I officially broke up with guilt and shame a couple years back, and it's due to what I'm going to share with you today. And what you have to understand is that diet culture success and the success of the weight loss industry, and to a certain extent, the fitness industry, is due in vast majority because we women feel guilt and shame. And that's how diet culture keeps us trapped in the vicious cycle of dieting. As women, we are trained by diet culture and other components in our life that something is wrong with us, that we consistently have to do something about the way we look. We have to do something about our optimum health. And because of that, we stay quiet and we stay dominated by the shoulds in our life. And because of this and being in that cycle for so long, 
We focus on being perfect, which leads us to approach life with an all or nothing attitude. And we get more focused on pleasing others than pleasing ourselves. And at the end of the day, our body, body size, shape, form, gets the blame for everything that goes wrong in our life. Are you with me? But the truth is, everything we've been conditioned to be ashamed of by diet culture is actually our source of power. The power that you have as a woman in today's society is what you've been ashamed of and guilty about for years. And that's where you can impact your life, your family life, your children, and even in some cases, discover your purpose. This is the base root of what I call diet culture feminism, right? This empowerment of women in face of diet culture. You're going to hear me talk more and more about this aspect of diet culture, because the more that I work with you, the more that I run my program, that I do group coaching, that I do one-on-one coaching, I'm certain that the solution, the struggle you and I have been living with for a long time isn't in working harder. It's not in being more perfect. It's not about more deprivation. It's about reclaiming back our power from food, reclaiming back our power from diet culture, and tapping into this innate source of power that we have within us. And when I talk about feminism, to be honest, it scares some women. I'm not sure why. I still have to do some work in understanding why the word feminism scares women. Some women, not all, but some women are scared by that word. And they don't want to hear anything I have to say as soon as I hear that word. But for now, let's think of feminism as this ability to reclaim our power from thy culture. I'm going to start exploring more and more on that topic as a solution for you to liberate yourself from thy culture, to make peace with food in your body. And I've created a brand new workshop over the holiday. Yes, I did work a little bit. It's called Women, Food, and Power, Why Diet Culture is a Feminist Issue and How to Reclaim Your Power Back from Diet Culture with these three power tools that I'm going to share with you in the workshop. It's free. It's a monthly educational workshop that we do every month. It's going to be held on Thursday, January the 16th at 1 p.m. EST. Uh, We will be sending a recording if you can't attend live. I'm conscious that many of you are working. I've put the link in the show notes for you to register to this. Or you can go to my website, stephaniedoze.com slash class. And I hope to see you there. I hope to see many of you. This is going to be an empowerment workshop. And I'm also going to talk about the topic of today in that workshop, which is the antidote to diet culture. And what I'm going to talk about today, this countermeasure to diet culture, is what diet culture tells us we shouldn't be doing. And that's why we are being kept in this vicious cycle. So let me, let me break it down. The antidote is self-compassion, right? Is this ability that we have to extend kindness to ourselves, to be gentle with ourselves. 
Uh, so we're going to talk about that today. Here's what is going to happen in the next few minutes by the end of the podcast. We're going to actually define self-compassion. I'm going to share with you the research of Dr. Kristen Neff on self-compassion. The three main components of self-compassion as Dr. Neff has researched them. And the, probably the most important part is why we resist self-compassion. You ready? So let's do this. Self-compassion is at the root of intuitive eating. For those of you who are intuitive eater or have studied with me intuitive eating, this whole framework is a self-care framework that was created by my mentor, Hevelyn Traboli and Ellis Roche. And the foundation of it was from self-compassion. How back in the days, their goal was how can we develop a way of eating that will enable women to express themselves self-compassion, right? So self-compassion is the attitude that will allow you to make peace with food. If you're not willing to be self-compassionate, you will not become a peaceful, intuitive eater. You will not become a person that is not attached to food for other outcome, right? Which is basically how women come to intuitive eating. They want to separate themselves from using food to shrink their body or to numb their emotion, right? Self-compassion is also at the base of making peace with your body. Self-compassion means relating with yourself with kindness, warmth, and understanding as you do with others in your life. It's about extending yourself this kindness, even though you want to change something about your current situation. It means treating yourself as you would treat others that are struggling with the same situation. It means acknowledging your own suffering, your own feelings of guilt, of shame, and recognizing that your suffering is part of the bigger human experience. It means extending care to yourself and comfort and kindness rather than criticism. The truth is, you can't beat yourself into peace and help. Self-compassion is centric to any lifelong changes in your life. So if you're sitting here listening to this podcast and said to me or say to me, I've tried to be an intuitive eater before and it didn't work. My answer to you would be, did you do it in the spirit of self-compassion? Or did you try to adopt the same attitude you had when you were dieting, aka punishing yourself, criticism, perfectionism, and attempt intuitive eating from that perspective? And when I ask that question, 100% of women will say, well, yeah, well, I didn't know I could do it any other way. It's so ingrained in us to be, quote, tough with ourselves that we lost touch, that there's another way of interacting with ourselves. And that way of interacting is self-compassion. At the beginning of the podcast, I talked about Dr. Kristen Neff 
Dr. Neff is a researcher who has studied self-compassion. She has a, a website on this for some of you who want to know and explore more on that. It's www.selfcompassion.org. There's a bunch of free tool in there. And she's been studying self-compassion for more than 20 years. She has well over 25 research showing the benefit of self-compassion over any other way of approaching a life transformation and the difference when people use self-compassion versus other approach like punishing yourself, being tough on yourself and self-discipline and, and so forth. So what I'm going to teach you in the rest of the podcast comes from her work, the evidence-based research that support what we're going to talk about today. And that is the only possible way for you to heal your relationship to food and body, to make peace with yourself, is to go about it from that perspective of self-compassion, if you want to be successful, that is. So what are the three components of self-compassion? Number one, it's self-kindness versus self-criticism. As I alluded to earlier, it's about extending compassion to yourself in the same way as you do to others. When I survey my student and we talk about diet brain, and I explain the four components of diet brain, one of them being people-pleasing, the vast majority of women identify themselves as people-pleaser, as putting others needs, care, in front of their own. And they relate to being compassionate to others, almost to an excess. So when I say being compassionate to someone who suffers in your life, likely many of you can connect to that. What if you don't make it any more complicated than what you do for others, you do for yourself? This compassion, this willingness, this motivation that you have to help others, the voice you use when you help others, the act of care that you take when you help others in your life. What if you start doing that to yourself? What if you change the narrative in your head from self-criticism to self-kindness? Now, it's, it's not like flipping a, a switch on the wall. Like, it's not going to take 30 seconds. Okay, today, I'm never going to be criticism. I'm never going to use self-criticism again. I'm just going to be kind to myself. We're done. And take practice. It's likely going to take some kind of framework or tool to help you change your mindset. But it's totally feasible. The proof is you're doing it to others. So you know it works. You know you can do it. It's just a matter of re-engaging with yourself in a different perspective. This first component of self-compassion is first start with the voice in your head to move from self-criticism to self-kindness and then acting upon that voice with suiting, comforting, supporting action 
to protect yourself, to care for yourself. It's about having the intention to engage with yourself to minimize suffering, to minimize pain, to minimize emotional discomfort. The truth is, the vast majority of the emotional discomfort that we suffer from is created by ourselves. It's created by the voice in our head. Yeah, we have due some emotional discomfort that perhaps can be caused by other people in our life, but the vast majority of the time is how we listen to them and how we interpret their words, which is a base of self-coaching. So if you go back to prior episode, it's about managing your mind. So that's the first component of self-compassion. The second one is the common humanity is this part of looking at your own suffering, at your own experience, and relating it to the rest of the world, to the rest of the women in this world. One of the things when I run my program online, my paid program, I always try to get as much engagement as possible from the women in the group. Because that's the magical part of the program. Has nothing to do with me, by the way. I'm just a facilitator. It's when women realize that they're not alone. That what they experience in face of diet culture is the same as all the other women in the group. This is when the light bulb goes up. They're like, oh my God, I'm not alone. And that is so powerful. And that part is in part the reason for this podcast. Now, the problem with the podcast is just me speaking to you. You guys are not together in a room listening to the podcast. That's where the magic would happen because you would realize that your suffering is just part of all the women's suffering that are in diet culture. So that second element of self-compassion is seeing that and accepting it that the problem is not you. The problem is diet culture. So that you can then start from a place of empowerment and realizing that there's nothing wrong with you. You just got to learn a different skill set. And then you're going to cloud your way out of the suffering that you are in right now. But it does take you breaking the isolation. The third component of self-compassion is mindfulness instead of over-identification. What does that mean? It means feelings are feelings. Feeling are emotion. And realizing that our emotions and our feeling are just that, an emotion and a feeling. They're this burst of energy that literally travels through your nervous system and then leaves your body. That's all an emotion and a feeling is. It means nothing about you. You are not the emotion. You are not the feeling. You are only feeling the feeling. In my program, we call that riding the wave of your emotion. So I want you to imagine 
your emotion. Let's talk about guilt, for an example. I want you to think of guilt as a wave in the ocean. There's a trigger in your life. Let's talk about guilt here in diet culture. Perhaps you're reading a book from a diet guru that says you should never, ever, ever, ever have sugar in your life, right? And then you're reading this, and then all of a sudden, you start feeling guilt. You start having a wave of guilt in your body because you're like, oh my God, I do eat sugar. So you start feeling guilty. What happens if we were to look at it at the macro level, in the micro level, it's literally your nervous system traveling a bite size of energy through your body that feels like guilt for you. And then it's like the wave, right? It comes up, it becomes really, really, really strong. And then at some point, what happens to the wave? It breaks. It only breaks if you don't identify with the guilt. You see, if you feel the guilt and you say, oh, it's just an emotion, it's literally traveling through my body and then it's going to leave and you just feel it, observe it, watch it, the wave's going to break and the guilt will go away. But if you become the guilt, you identify as a guilt and you keep it within. This is what we call having emotions stuck, right? We become guilty, right? We become angry. We keep this emotion in our body and we operate from that place. So then back to the book, we're reading this book and and the book says, sugar is terrible for you. You're a terrible person. If you have sugar, you're weak, blah, 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 blah. You start feeling guilty. You keep the guilt within you. You become guilty. You feel guilty. And then you close the book and you go to the kitchen and you start wiping off all the sugar out of your house. And then you go out a week later, perhaps with your girlfriend, and it's her birthday, right? And there's a cake that's being put on a table. And then right away in your head, you see the sugar. You're like, oh, no, Jesus, I'm a bad person. I'm a bad person. I'm a bad person. I can't do this. I can't do this. It's evil. It's evil. You get me? That emotion of guilt, you operate from it. And then that creates shame, right? Because you end up perhaps having a slice of the cake, perhaps a couple bites. And now you're a guilty person because of sugar. And now you've had the bad, awful sugar. And then you start feeling shame. So now you have guilt and shame playing inside of you and inside of your body. Self-compassion, that third element of self-compassion, remove this identification to your feeling and says, well, that's just interesting. Here's, I'm going to feel the guilt. I'm not going to become it. I'm going to let it go through my body, watch it, and release it. So these are the three components of self-compassion. Let me recap them to make sure it's clear if some of you are taking notes. Number one, self-kindness versus self-criticism. Two, common humanity versus isolation. And then three, mindfulness of your emotion versus over-identification. Now, this seems simple, right? It seems like should be easy to do, right? Three things. 
Why is it that I'm not doing it then? I know for me, I had a deep misunderstanding of self-compassion for most of my life. And this misunderstanding of self-compassion was acquired through a lifetime of living in society. First part, for me, I was raised in a family that believed that self-compassion was weak. And in return, we were taught to work really, really hard, that nothing came easy into this world. We had to struggle and fight our way through. My parents or caregiver were raised in the 50s and 60s, and they were raised in this generation of scarcity. They didn't have a lot of money. They were large family. They were poor. And everything they managed to have in their life, they had to do it via hard work. Plus, they lived in a culture of segregation and discrimination. I, I was, my family was raised in Quebec, Canada, which is the French colony of Canada in North America. So there was a lot of discrimination against the culture and the language, and my parents were raised into that, which ended up making me raised in a family that was operating from this place of survival, and there was no time for self-compassion. And then from there, I left the family unit and then went into work for a corporation and then really lost myself into diet culture. That gets me into the second component of why we misunderstand self-compassion, which is society, right? Beyond how you were raised in your family when you live into this world, the society, the Western society, think of self-compassion as indulgent, self-centered. And mostly in diet culture, self-compassion is taught to us as a way to lose our motivation to succeed. We must be tough on ourselves. We must be self-disciplined. We must criticize ourselves to be successful. And what's funny, when you start educating yourself as to why diet culture teaches us to be critical of ourselves is because diet do not work. Right? There's a 95% failure rate to the diet model, right? So the only hope you have to be in that top 5% is to be extremely tough on yourself because you're fighting against a mechanism that does not work. So for sure, if you're not extremely self-disciplined and for sure if you're not extremely tough on yourself, like paranoid about this lifestyle and completely living your life for the diet, there's no hope for you. So they teach this skill set because of the system that doesn't work. Yet 95% of us are not in that 5% special cases. And so we spent our life trying and trying and trying. And this attitude of being tough on ourselves is not only in the field of diet culture, it starts spreading through our entire life. It's the way we engage with exercise. It's the way we engage with our relationship. It's the way we engage with likely our family unit as well, right? For those of you who raise children, no matter how hard you try of not teaching your children that, if you are that, you will end up teaching it to your children. That's what my parents did, right? They didn't want to teach me this, but that's how they were. 
And 70% of children's learning is from the behavior of their parent. Not what they say, how they behave and how they act. So we live in this society that promotes not being self-compassionate. And that promotes self-criticism. The society into which we live and perpetuate us not being compassionate with ourselves. So we, in some way, we don't resist it. We are ingrained into it and we never look outside of it to do anything different. So the act of self-compassion in some way is an act of rebellion because it's counterculture. More specifically for us in diet culture, it's really counterculture. So you have to decide for yourself that you're going to be different. You're going to act towards yourself differently than what diet culture wants you to do. The truth is the act of self-compassion is innate to the human being. That's why we have to be ingrained in the current culture of dieting for us to change our innate behavior. But we can come back to this place of compassion with ourselves. That's the whole model of intuitive eating, right? When we learn intuitive eating, we teach you to go back to your innate way of engagement with food. It does take time to reprogram the firing in our brain, but it's totally feasible. You have to recognize first that you're resisting it. From there, you can then work on your resistance. And here's the most important part of this entire podcast. It's a choice. Know that in today's society, you as a woman have the choice to do what you want. That's the freedom we acquired over the last 150 years of feminist work. We acquired the right to do what we want, to be who we want to be. Therefore, the choice of not being compassionate with yourself is a choice. In the same way as the choice of being compassionate towards yourself is also a choice that's available to you. So my question to you is this, what will you choose? From this moment forward, I've educated you, I've given you the tools. If you shut down this podcast and continue to beat yourself and to criticize yourself and to be tough on yourself, it's an educated choice. If you close this podcast today and say, yep, she's got a point, I am making the choice to learn self-compassion and to start practicing it, it's your choice as well. I hope this podcast helps you to create this space of possibility and choice in your life and working in 2020 to develop self-compassion. I'm going to share with you three journaling exercises that you may want to start doing today, tomorrow, next week, to start developing self-compassion with yourself. So grab your pen and paper now, perhaps put us on pause and come back. So here's three self-compassion journaling questions for you to start to explore. What has been my attitude towards my body and eating thus far in my life? Has it been 
compassionate or critical? Question two. What if I could feel compassionate about myself and my body instead of being critical, judgmental, competitive, or unaccepting? How things could be different if I could find a way to open my heart in the face of my suffering, of my guilt, of my shame? I hope these three questions help you start exploring self-compassion. Our next podcast, Podcast 223, we will explore the concept of anti-diet with a colleague and fellow podcaster, Christy Arison from the Food Psych Podcast. She has a new book called Anti-Diet. So we're going to have her as an interview. So I can't wait to share that with you. I love you, sister. And I look forward to hanging out with you in the next episode. 